with the Lord's help, going to consider another episode from the life of King David. Uh, We'll begin in chapter 13, but we'll also be taking a look as well at chapter 14, 2 Samuel 13. I'll begin reading in verse 1. Now it was after this that Absalom, the son of David, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar, and Amnon, the son of David, loved her. Amnon was so frustrated because of his sister Tamar that he made himself ill, for she was a virgin, and it seemed hard to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah, David's brother, and Jonadab was a very shrewd man. He said to him, O son of the king, why are you so depressed morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Then Amnon said to him, I am in love with Tamar, the sister of my brother Absalom. Jonadab then said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. When your father comes to see you, say to him, Please let my sister Tamar come and give me some food to eat, and let her prepare the food in my sight, that I may see it and eat from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. When the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make me a couple of cakes in my sight that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent to the house for Tamar, saying, Go now to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, and he was lying down, and she took dough, kneaded it, and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. She took the pan and dished them out before him, but he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Have everyone go out from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the bedroom that I may eat from your hand. So Tamar took the cakes which she had made and brought them into the bedroom to her brother Amnon. When she brought them to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. But she answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this disgraceful thing. As for me, where could I get rid of my reproach? And as for you, you will be like one of the fools in Israel. Now therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. However, he would not listen to her. Since he was stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a very great hatred, for the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go away. But she said to him, No, because this wrong in sending me away is greater than the other that you have done to me. Yet he would not listen to her. Then he called his young man who attended him and said, Now throw this woman out of my presence and lock the door behind her. Now she had on a long-sleeved garment, for in this matter the virgin daughters of the king dressed themselves in robes. Then his attendant took her out and locked the door behind her. Tamar put ashes on her head and tore her long-sleeved garment which was on her, and she put her hand on her head and went away crying aloud as she went. Then Absalom, her brother, said to her, Has Amnon, your brother, been with you? But now keep silent, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this matter to heart. So Tamar remained and was desolate in her brother Absalom's house. Now when King David heard of all these matters, he was very angry. But Absalom did not speak to Amnon, either good or bad. For Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. Father, uh, your word teaches us elsewhere that you can make um, beauty out of ashes. And God, out of this uh, terrible story, God, I pray that you would speak uh, your great power to us, your great 
wisdom and your great love to us this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amnon, Tamar, and Absalom were, as we read, all three King David's children. Amnon was actually David's firstborn son, born to David's second wife, a woman named Ahinoam. And then Absalom and Tamar were born to another of David's many wives, a woman called Ma'akah. So Amnon and Tamar in this story are half-siblings. And even as half-siblings, a relationship between the two of them would have been incestuous according to the law of Moses, and it was strictly forbidden. Indeed, Leviticus 20 tells us that an incestuous relationship in Israel was punishable by death. And yet Amnon, devoid of any self-control and flouting the law of God, did what he did anyway. And he, in doing it, committed a second crime, of course, rape, which was also, according to Deuteronomy 22, punishable by death. And, of course, the great question as these events unfolded surely must have been in everyone's mind, what is the king going to do? What is mighty King David, a man after God's own heart, a man who has written these psalms saying how he loves the Lord's law and it's his meditation day and night. What is the king, the man of God, going to do about this? The law of God is the law of God, right? And on two counts, David's firstborn son deserves death. And yet he's also the king's firstborn son. So what will the king do? Well, the answer, as we read there in verse 21, is basically nothing at all. The king was angry, we're told, but he took no action. He didn't bring his son Amnon and place him before the bar of justice to stand trial. He didn't even pull him aside personally to reprove him or even to forgive him. He did nothing with Amnon. And as we read on, it also seems that David did nothing for his desolated daughter Tamar as well. She didn't go and live in the king's house. She went and lived and was cared for by her brother. It's a startling case of inactivity and lack of courage on the part of David the king. But his son Absalom, as the rest of the chapter unfolds, Tamar's brother, was not going to let this slide. He was not going to sit back like David sat back. And the rest of chapter 13 describes how, after biding his time for a couple of years, Absalom invited his half-brother Amnon to a party and had his servants fall upon him with swords and execute judgment upon him. Now that raises an interesting question which the Bible doesn't answer, and that is, was Absalom right to do what he did, to execute his brother? Now, it's clear that his brother, Amnon, deserved what he got that day, right? The Bible tells us that these crimes were punishable by death, but was it right for Absalom to take justice into his own hands? Well, as I say, the narrator of these events doesn't tell us. But clearly, Absalom didn't think his father would sympathize with him in his actions. And so we read at the end of chapter 13 that he saddled his horse and he fled to his maternal grandfather's house in a neighboring land, a neighboring kingdom called Jeshur. And so that's where Absalom fled and he stayed there for three years. And David apparently was very angry with him, just as he had been very angry with Amnon, when he committed the crime against his sister. And yet, as with Amnon, so with Absalom, the king did nothing about this situation. He simply let Absalom flee. He didn't call him back in for justice. He didn't come speak to him personally. 
But over time, at the end of the chapter, we read that the king's heart softened. Verses 38 and 39. So Absalom had fled and gone to Jeshur and was there three years. The heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Amnon since he was dead. The heart of King David longed to go out to Absalom. But again, the king seems to have been paralyzed. And again, he did nothing. And this time, David's military commander, Joab, stepped up and took matters into his own hands, not nearly so brazenly as Absalom had done. But in chapter 14, we find that Joab is now trying to urge the king to action as well. Read with me, beginning in verse 1. Now, Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was inclined towards Absalom. So Joab sent to Tekoa and brought a wise woman from there and said to her, Please pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning garments now and do not anoint yourself with oil, but be like a woman who has been mourning for the dead many days. Then go to the king and speak to him in this manner. So Joab put the words in her mouth. Now when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and prostrated herself and said, Help, O king. The king said to her, What is your trouble? And she answered, Truly I am a widow, for my husband is dead. Your maidservant had two sons, but the two of them struggled together in the field, and there was no one to separate them. So one struck the other and killed him. Now behold, the whole family has risen against your maidservant, and they say, Hand over the one who struck his brother, that we may put him to death for the life of his brother, whom he killed, and destroy the heir also. Thus they will extinguish my coal which is left, so as to leave my husband neither name nor remnant on the face of the earth. She's a widow. Her one son has killed the other son, and now she's pleading with the king that there might be mercy towards her son who committed the crime so that she won't be left completely alone and barren and without someone to care for her and to carry on the family name. Verse 8, Then the king said to the woman, Go to your house, and I will give orders concerning to you. The woman of Tekoa said to the king, O my lord, the king, the iniquity is on me and my father's house, but the king and his throne are guiltless. So the king said, Whoever speaks to you, bring him to me, and he will not touch you any more. Then she said, Please let the king remember the Lord your God, so that the avenger of blood will not continue to destroy, otherwise they will destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, not one hair of your son shall fall to the ground. Then the woman said, Please let your maidservant speak a word to my lord the king. And he said, Speak. The woman said, Why then have you planned such a thing against the people of God? For in speaking this word, the king is as one who is guilty, in that the king does not bring back his banished one. For we will surely die, and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. Now, this is the second week in a row that we find David being straightened out by the words of a woman. Last week, you remember, David, in a fit of rage, rushed off to kill a man and his entire household over a relatively minor offense. But God used the gentle reproof of Abigail to slow down David's rash behavior. This morning, we find David at the opposite extreme. He's not rushing off to do anything now. He's actually sitting on his hands, even though the crime that has been committed is much more serious. Rape and then vigilante justice on the part of Absalom. 
And yet now David, so eager once to act, is paralyzed with indecision and moral cowardice. And once again, he's helped by the gentle reproof of a woman. Now, I know this woman was actually sent to David by Joab and that we're told he put the words into her mouth. But she's the one who actually had the courage to go and say them, isn't she? And we're told in verse 2 that she was a wise woman so that perhaps some of the counsel that she offers David was not simply the words that Joab put in her mouth, but her own wisdom. I think perhaps particularly the words that she said in verse 14. I don't want to linger on this point, but it's just another reminder of how God uses godly women. Where would David have been without Abigail? And where would he have been without this woman from Tekoa? And where would some of us be without mothers and grandmothers and wives and Sunday school teachers and so on who have spoken the word of God to us? So just another reminder this morning, children, listen to your mothers. Men, listen to your godly wives when they are talking sense to you. It may well be that they'll save you from many foolish decisions. And women, be like Abigail. Be like this woman from Tekoa. Be wise. Be humble. Speak the truth. Yes, with tact. Yes, with gentleness. But be speakers of the truth, ladies. Just one small note from this story. Another, an, another aside um, that we might notice from these events uh, is a lesson regarding parenting. Parenting. David had constant problems with his sons. We see here that his one son, Amnon, committed rape. Later on, this Absalom would rebel against David and actually go to war against his father. And even at the end of David's life, another of his sons, Adonijah, in David's old age, tried to take advantage of David's old age and usurp the throne from his father. David had constant problems with his sons. And one of the reasons why his sons were so unruly is just because of what we saw in this passage. For instance, verse 20, when David, King David, heard of all these matters, he was very angry. But he did and said nothing. And then when Absalom struck Amnon down, again, Absalom fled because he knew that his father was very angry. But again, King David did nothing. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 1, uh, we read a statement regarding David's relationship with another of his sons, Adonijah, that I think fairly sums up David's parenting strategy in general. Regarding Prince Adonijah, we're told this in 1 Kings 1.6, His father, David, never crossed him at any time by asking, Why have you done so? Adonijah was doing what he shouldn't be doing, and his father never crossed him at any time and said, What are you thinking? And that seems to have been David's modus operandi when it came to problems with his children in general. He never crossed them at any time. And I simply say, woe to us parents if those words can be described of our own families. Woe to us fathers if we always make our wives be the ones to cross the children to discipline. Woe to us if we're unwilling, mothers and fathers, to cross our own children and sometimes to say to them kindly, what do you think you're doing? Even sometimes we may need to say that when they're adults, as David's sons were in this passage. 
Now, of course, there's a right way and a wrong way to do that, and I'm not trying to give you license this morning to nag your children or nitpick your children or be harsh or unkind with your children, but let us be wary of it ever being said of our children, his father never crossed him at any time. Her mother never asked her, why are you doing what you're doing? So, an encouragement to women, a warning to parents, and then in the third place, let me give you a brief word about prodigals from these same events. Prodigals. I'm not 100% sure what David's attitude towards his son Absalom really should have been. Even though, as we said, Amnon deserved to die, Absalom probably crossed the line significantly by taking matters into his own hands. It's very likely that what Absalom did should have been considered and was considered murder and manslaughter. And that, of course, put David in a precarious position. On the one hand, he's Absalom's father. So his heart goes out to his son. Wouldn't your heart go out to your son no matter what he had done? His heart goes out to his son. And yet, on the other hand, David is the king. He's responsible for administering justice in the land. He's responsible for sending down the sentences for crimes just like this one. And so in some ways, it's hard to fault David for not knowing what to do and for dragging his feet a little bit. But at least Joab and this wise woman from Tekoa believed that after three years, the king should have erred on the side of mercy and forgiveness and welcoming the prodigal son home. And I want to encourage you also to lean strongly in that direction as well. Is there some prodigal in your life? Some child who's walked away? Some parent who's hurt you? A sibling who's ditched the family and harmed your parents? A friend who has deserted you? Is there someone like that in your life? Can you picture them right now, some prodigal? As it was with David, I can't begin to understand all the issues that you have to think through. I can't begin to untangle all the knots that are there. I can't answer all the questions you may have about exactly how to handle someone who has done such things and hurt people so badly. But I do think this woman from Tekoa was right as she urged David to err on the side of mercy and forgiveness and welcoming the prodigal home. And so I urge you just to think about how you might do that in your own life. Maybe reconciliation for some of you just needs to start with a birthday card or a phone call. But whatever the case, let your heart, as David's heart, go out to the banished one in your life. That's what the wise woman from Tekoa urged upon the king. And I want you to see now, particularly, that she urged that attitude, that kind of mercy upon the king based on God's own mercy toward us. The king, she says, should show mercy towards the banished one because that is what God does with us. Verse 14, We will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. That's what she says to David. Isn't that a wonderful statement about God? Even aside from what David needed to do, this is an amazing statement. And here's where I want to spend the rest of our time this morning. This verse is what I really want to preach to you this morning. Aside from all the questions about how David needed to mingle fatherly mercy with his role as a defender of justice, 
aside from the fact that as we read on this book, in this book, we find that neither David nor Absalom really ever came around fully to one another. In spite of those things, this woman's counsel to David, I believe, was right. And even more so, her description of God's mercy is incredibly profound. We will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. That is an amazing statement, especially the latter half of it that explains to us what our God is like. He plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. And I'd like to suggest to you, in fact, that 2 Samuel 14, 14 is really almost a summary of the entire storyline of the Bible. Can you see that there? This statement that this woman makes is a summary of the entire storyline of the Bible. And so I want to spend several minutes considering this verse with you. And I want to just divide it into its two halves. First of all, I want you to notice what she says about us. We will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Those first few words should sound very familiar to you. We will surely die. Isn't that what God said to Adam and Eve way back in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16? The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. And yet in the very next chapter, they ate that fruit. And just as God said, Adam and Eve surely died, and all the human race with them, through one Man sinned to the world and death through sin, Romans 5, so that death spread to all men because all sinned. Or as the children's lyric puts it, in Adam's fall, we sinned all. And because we sinned all, because we are sinners, in the words of the wise woman of Tekoa, we will surely die. And I want to say to you that this is perhaps the most fundamental statement that can be made about the human race from Genesis 3 onwards. We will surely die. That can be said of every single human on the planet. There are a lot of things that can't be said about you, but that can be said about him, or that can be said about you, that can't be said about me. But one thing can be said of us all, we will surely die. And so we find that this woman speaks to David about the certainty of death, and through her, God speaks to us. Does it occur to you on a regular basis that what this woman says is true? We will surely die. You will surely die. I'm not asking you to be morbid or to be constantly afraid of every germ or every doctor's visit or every oncoming vehicle on the highway. We shouldn't be morbid. We shouldn't be afraid of death, but we should be sober and realistic about it, shouldn't we? The reality is that we never know when that germ or that car or that visit to the doctor may be the arrow that pierces our mortality and carries us into the next world. We will surely die. As David said of himself when fleeing from Saul, fleeing for his life from the prior king, there is never more than one step between me and death. 
We will surely die, said the woman of Tekoa. It's an absolute certainty, and it will come to us all perhaps sooner than we would like. And I simply want to ask you, if you truly lived your life in light of this woman's statement, if you truly lived your life in light of the certainty of your own death and the brevity of your own life, what might be different? If you wakened every morning embracing the reality that by dinner time you might be standing in the presence of God, how would that affect the way you live? How would living each day in the light of this statement, we will surely die, add to your urgency, for instance, to welcome that prodigal home? How would the soon coming of your death urge you to rid yourself of that besetting sin or to speak clearly of Jesus to that neighbor? That neighbor will surely die as well. What ought the thought of your impending dissolution and departure from this world do to the amount of time you spend with your children? Or the amount of time you spend in your Bible? Or the amount of time you spend in frivolities? And for those of you who are here this morning and you're not certain that you know Christ, you're not certain that you are forgiven of your sins, what does the fact that you will surely die mean to you? Can you wait one Sunday more to entrust yourself to Jesus? What if your number comes up this week? What if there is never another Sunday? I hope that we see that what this woman says is serious. Because of sin, Adam's sin and our own sin, we will all surely die. Death for each one of us is a certainty. And not only does this woman speak of death's certainty, but also its finality There again in verse 14, we will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. I find that to be one of the most fascinating descriptions of death in all the scriptures. We are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. There's nothing so irreversible as water spilled on the ground, is there? On a hot day, it evaporates in moments. On a dry day, it soaks right into the soil, and you can never scoop it up again. Just do it when you go home today. Pour some water on your driveway and see if you can get it back into the glass. Well, says the woman, such is human life. Ever since Genesis 3, we are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. You only get one life in this world. There's no gathering it up again. There are no second chances at this life. It's appointed for man to die once, Hebrews 9, and after this, the judgment. And so again, I simply ask you to consider how the fact that you will surely die and that your death will be final, how ought that to affect the way you spend your days? What does the finality of death, the impossibility of ever gathering your life together again in this world say about any grudges you may be holding? What does the finality of your death say about any money you may be hoarding? Or any call from God that you may be running from? Or any sin that you may be accommodating? Again, there's an old lyric that helps us here. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. We will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again that i say is the most fundamental statement that can be made about the human race from genesis 3 to this day as i said there are a great many things that may be true of you that aren't true of me 
There are a great many things that are true of me that aren't true of you. There are things that are true of believers that aren't true of unbelievers and vice versa. We're all different in so many ways, but there's one statement that can be said of us all, and that is that we will surely die, and we are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. But if verse 14 provides for us a summary of mankind's existence, mankind's existence, I say, since Genesis 3, verse 14 also provides us an even better synopsis of God's work in the world since Genesis 3. As I said, I think 2 Samuel 14, 14 is really a summary of the whole storyline of the Bible. Ever since mankind's fall, all of the rest of the Bible unfolds the fact that we will surely die, but also since that same date in biblical history, mankind's fall, the whole Bible records that the work of God in the world can be masterfully summarized in these words at the end of verse 14, yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. That's the Bible. That's the story from Genesis 3 to Revelation 22 and on into the present day. God plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. Adam and Eve were banished ones. Their death was not only a physical death, but a spiritual death. They died not only bodily, but they died to God. They lost their relationship with him. They made themselves his enemies. They were banished from the garden that God had planted for their enjoyment. And mankind, ever since, comes into the world born into this state of banishment and exile. And yet the whole story of the Bible from Genesis 3 forward is one long series of events where we see God planning ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. That is the Bible in a nutshell. These words of the wise woman from Tekoa, God does not take away life but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out. It began, of course, with the banished ones in the Garden of Eden. Adam and Eve's sins made them fear God and hide from God. They had already begun to banish themselves before God banished them. But we're told that God came down to the garden to look for them. He planned a way for the banished ones not to be cast out from him. Their sin also made them ashamed of their nakedness. But God made clothing of skins for them. He planned a way to cover their shame. Most of all, Adam and Eve's sins banished them from the garden and from their face-to-face fellowship with God. But God promised that he would send the seed of the woman, a redeemer, who would someday vanquish the devil who had tempted them and restore man's fellowship with his maker and return us to the garden again. And so I say to you that from the very beginning of man's sin in Genesis 3, we see the Lord planning ways so that these banished ones might not be cast out from him forever. And that's true not only in the Garden of Eden, but also as we read along into the Law of Moses. The Law of Moses made it clear that certain sins and certain forms of uncleanness rendered a person cut off from the assembly of Israel, banished. And so like Absalom here in chapter 13, according to the Law of Moses, there were people who had to flee the camp. People who had to leave the camp of Israel just like Adam and Eve had to leave the garden. They were cast out from the assembly of God's people. And yet what do we read in that same Mosaic law? We read that God 
provided for those banished ones a possibility of coming back. He provided sacrifices for sin, the blood of bulls and goats, which, when shed, brought those outcasts back home. The books of Moses are filled with examples of offerings for lepers, offerings for ceremonial uncleanness, offerings for unintentional sins, offerings for intentional sins, and so on. Indeed, it may very well have been these sacrifices that this woman of Tekoa had in mind when she said that God plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. She may have been saying to David, go back and look at the law of Moses and see that God wants the prodigals to come back. God is patient toward us, 2 Peter 3.9, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That's the New Testament equivalent of 2 Samuel 14.14. 14. And we should see God's unwillingness that any should perish all throughout the Old Testament law. In fact, looking for that may well enliven your own personal reading of books like Leviticus. Don't just read Leviticus and see, boy, this is just a long list of multiplied sacrifices, just a dry list of regulations. No, realize that every one of those sacrifices is a marvelous example of the fact that God plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. We see this same principle at work in the book of Judges, don't we? People of God were constantly rebelling against him, and he would sell them into the hands of their enemies. He would cast them out from his special blessing, and yet when they cried to the Lord, God would send them a Samson or a Gideon or a Jephthah to deliver them. Why did he do that? Because he's the God who plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. The same truth applies when we come to the end of the Old Testament and find God's people banished in the land of Babylon. Like Absalom here in chapter 13, they were banished because of their own sin. And like Absalom, they did not deserve that their father's heart would go out to them. They did not deserve that the king would send for them to bring them home. But the king did send for them. His heart did go out to them, and he did bring them home. Not because of anything in them, but because of something in him. Because he is the God whose delight is to plan ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. Do you see how wise this widow from Tekoa really was? She was able to preach to David the whole message of the Bible, the whole history of God's dealings with mankind, the whole sermon that I'm trying to preach to you this morning, and she was able to do it in one sentence. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banishment, banished one will not be cast out from him. Of course, all this history, all this planning by God to bring the outcast home comes to its greatest fruition and fulfillment when we open the pages of the New Testament. Ultimately, all the ways that God planned in the Old Testament were temporary and symbolic. Those animal skins could cover Adam and Eve's nakedness, but they could never cover their sin. The blood of those bulls and goats that Moses commanded could not finally take away sin either. They were only a temporary measure to restore fellowship with God and cause the people to look for the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Samson and Gideon may well have been able to deliver God's people from the Midianites and from the Philistines, but they couldn't deliver them from the dominion of the devil, who was their enemy from the beginning. And that return from exile in Babylon to the city of Jerusalem, wonderful as it was, was not the same as a return to the Garden of Eden. And so I say to you that all the ways that God planned in the Old Testament to bring the banished ones back home were temporary and they were symbolic. But when we turn over from Malachi to Matthew, we read about a baby in a manger who is no mere symbol, but who is Emmanuel, God with us. And we are told that he will save his people from their sins. And then we read about a boy growing up, tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin, and therefore able as a man to become sin on our behalf. We read that this Jesus then on the third day rose from the dead, putting an end to the agony of death and making it possible that our lives, unlike water spilled on the ground, may indeed be gathered up again someday in the heavenly city. Isn't that amazing? Jesus' death and resurrection reverses what has been so long true of the human race. We may be gathered up again. God will cause our bodies to rise from the ground and to reconstitute themselves. And we will be with him forever in heaven. And upon his returning, God will restore the earth so that the bliss that existed in the Garden of Eden will be ours again. This is the one God promised to Adam and Eve way back in Genesis 3, the seed of the woman. And all throughout Old Testament history, we see God calling Abraham and building the Jewish nation and rescuing them from their slavery in Egypt and keeping them from being exterminated by Haman in the book of Esther and restoring them to their homeland. And God was doing all these things, building and protecting this nation, not simply because he loved the people of Israel, but because it was through this family that he was going to send his son to the world. In all of God's dealings with and preservation of the nation of Israel, he was planning the ways in which he would send his son into the world. He was planning the ways in which we would enjoy God with us. He was planning the ways in which he would save his people from their sins. He was planning the ways by which he would call back all of his banished ones, both Jew and Gentile. And so I say again that 2 Samuel 14, 14 is the whole Bible in one verse. It encapsulates all that God was doing in preserving Old Testament Israel and all the signs and the symbols that he gave to them and in the sending of his son for banished ones like you and me. This is the story of the whole Bible from Genesis 3 onwards. We will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again, yet... God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him. And let me finally say that 2 Samuel 14, 14 is not only the story of the Bible, but it's the story of your life, too. If you have eyes to see, I think you'll agree with me that your life can also be summed up by saying, we will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life. But in my life, he has planned ways for the banished one not to be cast out from him. 
Not only was God planning ways to bring you back to him 2,000 years ago in Galilee and in Jerusalem and on the cross and in the empty tomb, but I'm certain that the years of your own pilgrimage, if you have eyes open, will demonstrate to you that in all the varied providences of your life, God has been planning ways so that you, the banished one, would not be cast out from him. Think about all the various people that the Holy Spirit has brought into your life to point you to Jesus. You didn't seek them out. They just came into your life. Parents, grandparents, Sunday school teachers, perhaps a Christian school teacher, or for me, a Christian baseball coach in high school. Pastors, the neighbor maybe who invited you to church so many years ago. That man on the street giving out tracts. You can just look at your life and see all the folks that God has brought, all the ways that he has planned so that you would hear the gospel. Some of you, too, can pinpoint difficulties in your life, which you didn't want at the time, but on retrospect, you see that the Holy Spirit was clearly using that agony to bring you to himself. For example, where would I be if it weren't for a big fight in the church in which I grew up which led to a big repentance in the church in which I grew up, which led to me saying, if that's what it looks like to be a Christian, to be able to repent and trust the Lord to forgive you, I'm not a Christian. But I became one. Maybe some of you can think of particular verses of Scripture that God put in your lap, or sermons that you heard, or books that were in your hand that meant so much to you and helped you come to know the Lord. Perhaps even this very sermon is one of God's ways, planned from eternity past, to bring someone in this room today to repent of sins and to entrust yourself to Jesus and to be banished from God's presence no more. Begin this morning. I urge you to come to him. God is always working, whatever the means may be. God's always weaving the webs of our lives so that we will hear the good news, so that we will be persuaded that his heart goes out to us, and so that we will come to our senses like the prodigal in Jesus' parable and get up out of our pigsties and return to our Heavenly Father. Can you see God's hand at work across the years in your own life? Have you ever stopped and think of, thought about all the people and the places and the events and the difficulties and the scriptures that God has brought across your path all so that you might come to know Jesus and be more like him as you grow? Isn't it, as you look at your life, abundantly true that God plans ways for the banished one not to be cast out from him? And when we get to heaven, see how intricately the web was woven that brought all of these wonderful providences together in our lives at just the right times. I think we will say in that day with the Queen of Sheba, when she finally saw Solomon's glory firsthand, the half was not told me. What an amazing God. What amazing things he has done. Sending his only begotten son to crush the head of that serpent of old, the devil. To be the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. To deliver us from the hands of our final enemy, which is death. To bring us back from exile and into the heavenly Jerusalem. God plans ways. And he's still planning ways. What a marvelous kindness that God has sent his spirit to so order your steps 
that many of you would find this Jesus, or rather would be found by him. What an amazing God that he would write our life stories as follows. We will surely die and are like water spilled on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Yet God does not take away life, but plans ways so that the banished one will not be cast out from him.